This evening, we're going to look at the beginning of the book of Esther, um, a book that I imagine quite a lot of us will be familiar with. Um, it's a really, really brilliant story. Aside from the fact that it's the living word of God, it is well worth the read in its own right. Um, and I'd encourage you this week, if you have the time, to read through the rest of the book. But before we get stuck in this evening, it'll be helpful to have a bit of a historical context to what's going on. Um, Esther's part of the Old Testament, meaning that the events it recounts took place during God's promised relationship with the nation of Israel. God chose the descendants of Abraham as his people, and he promised them a land that they could call home, where they could live under his rule and blessing. The journey to get there wasn't all plain sailing, and the Israelites experienced God's grace and forgiveness as they sinned repeatedly against him, rejecting and disobeying God. But in the end, they did get there, and as Israel settled into the land God had given them, he expanded the promise he'd given, setting out a framework for how sinful people could be in a relationship with a perfect God. However, over time, the Israelites began to forget God's goodness to them, and that developed and escalated into a national rejection of the God who'd saved them. Over generations, God sent Israel warnings and appeals, calling them to return to their relationship with him. And it had mixed results. Sometimes Israel did turn back to God for a while, but eventually, every time they slid back into their rebellious ways. And ultimately, after decades and centuries of repeated chances and forgiveness, God took drastic measures to call his children back to himself. He allowed Israel to be conquered by the Babylonians, and God's chosen people were taken out of God's land into exile, cast out because of their consistent and stiff-necked rebellion against him. But God didn't leave Israel without hope. He promised that they would be kept there for 70 years, and then they'd be allowed to return. And he told them about a future king, one who would change their relationship with God forever restoring them completely. And sure enough, 70 years later, King Cyrus decreed that the Jews should be allowed to go home to Israel and begin to rebuild the temple where they previously worshipped God. And that is what a lot of Israelites did. However, it seems that some of them decided to stay in exile. And it's among these Jewish exiles living voluntarily in a foreign land that the book of Esther takes place. And this last detail plays quite a big part in how we interpret the book as a whole. Because when you look at the Jews written about in this book, it's helpful to recognize that they are where they are because they have chosen not to return to their spiritual homeland. We can have a tendency, I think, or at least I can, to put the Jewish protagonists of Old Testament books on a bit of a pedestal. Maybe that's because imitation is a, a way of applying the Bible that comes naturally to us and sometimes can take a bit less work than other ways of applying it. But it's worth noting here that the author of Esther recounts some questionable behavior by several different people. But at no point does he offer judgment on any of it. His inclusion, or their inclusion, of those behaviors in this book is not an endorsement. The story takes place some time after Cyrus's decree, 
and someone called Xerxes is now king of Persia. The story takes place in his capital city, Susa, and the whole narrative takes place in the Persian corridors of power. Imagine an ancient version of the West Wing. And in biblical terms, Esther's quite an unusual book. Firstly, because God doesn't seem to be in it. His name isn't mentioned in any of Esther's 10 chapters. And if Esther wasn't a book of the Bible, we might not be that surprised by it. After all, it's a story that takes place in the Persian Empire, which didn't recognize God of the Bible. And it centers around two individuals who are Jewish, but have turned down the chance to return to the promised land, choosing instead the apparent comfort of life in the Persian king's city. And based on all of that, we might be forgiven for thinking that the book of Esther has no place in the Bible. But it is here. So we have to ask ourselves, why? Why has it been included in the Bible? Why is God not mentioned? Do these things take place outside of God's sphere of influence? Does God's power depend on people recognizing and living for him? They're questions that will go a short way into answering this evening, but as you read the rest of the book, hopefully the rest of the week, something to think about. The second reason Esther's an unusual book is that it's one of very, very few parts of the Old Testament that doesn't focus on the Jews' return to Israel. While most accounts of the exiled Jews revolve around God's promises of their return, this book makes no mention of their home country at all. And these two unusual characteristics give us a kind of insight into the minds of the Jewish characters in the story. God doesn't really feature in their thinking, and they seem quite content where they are. Thank you very much. So what are we to make of this little book which doesn't seem to have any interest in God or in his plans for a chosen kingdom? Well, it becomes clear as you read the book that these little quirks aren't an accident. They're there then to get our attention and they help us understand the people of the story because the author of Esther has written it with a bigger agenda in mind. The big lesson of Esther, the melodic line of the book, if you will, is that God works through the ordinary lives of his people, whether he is recognized and credited with it or not. I'll say that again. God works through the ordinary lives of his people, whether he is recognized and credited with it or not. And there is a second big theme to the book of Esther, and the author uses quite an unusual approach to reveal it to us. Satire. Esther is a really funny book. It deals with some gritty events, yes, but all the way through, the author uses humor and a sarcastic wit to show us the reality beyond our first impressions. And as the book subtly mocks and jokes, the author tears back the curtain on the Persian Empire. The author invites us to consider the truth of humankind's fundamental weakness while simultaneously recognizing God's great power to work, unseen and unrecognized. It's a brilliant book, and I wish I had time to preach through the whole thing. But don't worry, this evening it's just going to be the first chapter. The clock's broken at the back, but I've got my watch here, so fingers crossed it won't be too late. 
So we'll start by reading Esther chapter 1. It's page 501 in the Blue Church Bibles and page 771 in the large print. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehiman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of the law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were the highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she wouldn't come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the province of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed through all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memucan proposed. 
He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. As I mentioned, the Book of Esther takes place in the Persian equivalent of the White House, or 10 Downing Street. In fact, over 400 words of this book are dedicated to wealth, servants, and the etiquettes of power. And this prestigious setting has been described in expansive detail in the chapter we've just read, hasn't it? Everything about it seems designed to big up Xerxes and to boost his credentials. It is full of pomp and circumstance. In verse 1, Xerxes is described as ruling over 127 provinces, which is an unusual way of putting it. The Persian Empire historically was always described as 31 regions, and it takes some interesting accounting to come up with 127 of them. Rather than being a geographical record, I think the point is to labor the size of King Xerxes' empire, a notion that's supported by the rest of verse 1, which describes his nation as ranging from India to Kush. Verse 2 leans into the idea as well, doesn't it? Persian kings were often pictured sitting on impressive thrones like this one in all their splendor. But the author of Esther goes a step further, presenting us with King Xerxes on his royal throne in the citadel, the fortress city of Susa. Now, Susa was a key city in ancient Persia, and it remains a remarkable site today. I've just got, it's a bit hard to see on the big screen, I think, but this is an artist's rendering of what the city looked like in its heyday. It was a big city of its time, fortified, grandiose, full of remarkable architecture, and it was a city of extreme importance to the empire. It wasn't a surprise then that Xerxes wanted to rule from there. So we begin with Xerxes ruling over his huge empire from his big throne living in his castle. So far, so impressive, you might say. And things continue to look fine, as even though he's only been king for three years, Xerxes throws this massive banquet for his military leaders. History tells us that he was gathering support for an invasion of Greece, and just look at how he went about it. The banquet's described as lasting six months. Now, historians tell us that even a week of full-on Persian banqueting was about as much as anyone could take. So it may be that Xerxes split his nobles into groups and had lots of them. But I think the idea is probably similar to the 127 provinces. A bit of hyperbole. This is a big number designed to press home the enormousness of this party. And verse 4 tells us that the full, empire, full wealth of the Persian Empire was on display, reflecting Xerxes' massive success. And when Xerxes had finished wooing his armed forces, he gave another, shorter banquet, but with a much wider audience. For seven days, everybody literally everybody, from the least to the greatest, who lived in the king's fortress city, was invited into his private gardens for the after party. And notice how the word citadel is repeated for us, just in case we missed it the first time. Now, verse 6, the description of this garden, is a good example of something being lost in translation. In the original Hebrew, this verse is made up of several incomplete sentences. The syntax is cut short with each phrase. It's meant to sound like a series of exclamations. Ooh, the hangings, the cords, 
the pillars, the couches, the floor. Imagine a little child walking into a funfair for the first time and being completely overwhelmed as they try to take in the colorful flashing lights, the music, the laughter and the screams, the crowds, all the toys hung everywhere, people shouting and the smells from all the different stands. This verse gives us a tsunami of extravagance and expense. And the author tops off this description with the wine. No mass-produced goblets from Ikea for King Xerxes' guests. The word served in verse 7 has a dual meaning. It both means served as in poured and stored, suggesting that not only were each of these goblets that they were drinking out of uniquely sculpted creations, but the very jugs from which the king's royal wine was poured were individual pieces of art. In summary then, all the Kardashian weddings put together have got nothing on a King Xerxes party. Even Russia, China and North Korea combined couldn't put on a display of pomp like Persia. Oh, and in verse 9, the queen threw a party as well. And I wonder how you felt reading those verses. Did it sound impressive? Do you wish you were there? Or did you feel like it was laid on a little bit thick? Six months? Gold couches on gemstone floors? Not to mention the special fortress citadel place? Doesn't it all seem a little bit ridiculous? And also... After such a mighty introduction to the king in verses 1 and 2, he rules over 127 provinces from India to Kush. Do you not think he might have started with something a little bit more impressive than a party? And then, look at the wine again. No doubt, Xerxes was a mighty leader with lots of influence. But does a king really need to decree that people enjoy themselves? And make no bones about it, it was decreed. Look back at verses 7 and 8, at how Xerxes commands and instructs. It says, by his command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. So his command was, you can drink what you want. His was a government run on bureaucracy. Even the absence of direction had to be directed. And I think these little stabs of humor are meant to ease us into the idea that this display of wealth and power isn't quite as impressive as it looks before the next verses bring Xerxes down to earth with a bump. Because as we turn to verses 10 and 12, we see that despite his status and position, Xerxes was still a man with ordinary problems. Specifically here, poor judgment and a challenging marriage. So having set the scene, we read in verse 10 how King Xerxes got swept up in the party vibes, possibly quite drunk, and decides to roll out his prize attraction, his wife. And straight away, notice how he goes about it. He doesn't get up and pop inside to go and speak to her. No, Xerxes commands. In fact, he sends a whole company of men. And the way these names are listed is meant to make us laugh. To a Jewish audience, this would have seemed like a ridiculously long list of comedically long names. 
And I think the number of them, seven, is meant to make us think that this list is the whole list, as in this is the full complement of Xerxes' eunuchs. Imagine the king staggering to his feet, unrolling a scroll and calling out, Fetch Mechiman, eunuch of the queen's headwear. Bring me Bizda, marital communication lead. Don't forget Harbona, royal chief of makeup, and Abagtha, director of banquets. I also need Zethar, lead beauty coordinator, and Carcass, director of public dancing. It is a ludicrous display of bureaucracy, a grand procession of overinflated egos, a charade as these seven men parade off into the palace at the whim of this ever-powerful king. But the pomp and ceremony is brought down to earth with an unexpected and unceremonious refusal, isn't it? Once again, just compare the amount of space that's been dedicated to describing Xerxes' grand announcement and his direction on how she's supposed to be called, and how short the summary of Queen Vashti's response is. Can you picture it? It's a scene worthy of any vintage British comedy. This column of elegantly dressed men marching off so smartly. They line up in front of Vashti and they deliver the edict in a loud voice. Vashti stares at them for a moment and says, no. 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 And so this committee have to shuffle sheepishly back to the king awkwardly looking at the ground while he demands, well, where is she? Eventually, one of them would step forward and say, well, uh, she said no, your majesty. The historian Josephus actually suggests that he sent this parade of messengers over and over again to no avail. You see, Xerxes may be lord, emperor, high king of 127 provinces, master of gardens full of linen, owner of gold couches and walker of bejeweled floors. He may be the speaker of edicts that cannot be repealed, but he's not a husband worthy of or able to command the respect of his wife. It's not the main point here, but husbands, ask yourselves, do you seek to prove yourselves worthy of your wife's respect? Or do you have a bit of a tendency to insist on it based on your position as husband, your genuine hard work to provide, your brains and your brawn. In fact, all of us who hold any position of authority, ask yourselves this, is it a responsibility you aspire to earn or a hammer that you wield? Ian Duggard describes this scene brilliantly. He says that the mouse had roared and the glorious empire was shaken to its foundations by her refusal. Persian law may have been unchangeable. The king's decrees might not have been able to be retracted. But so far, how much power has Xerxes demonstrated, really? Let's take a minute to c consider the commands he's given so far. Firstly, during his great feast, he decreed that people should drink what they wanted. His first instruction in this book is that people should do what they want. Not exactly a historic legal judgment, is it? And his second command, to call his wife from her culturally appropriate separate feast so that he could parade her in front of a gaggle of drunk men, hardly screams wise and powerful ruler. 
as suggested by Vashti's separate banquet, women and men didn't mix outside their families in Persia, and it would have been considered inappropriate for a woman to be seen in public. To act as Xerxes did would have humiliated his queen, not to mention reflecting poorly on himself. So it seems that Vashti's refusal was quite reasonable, albeit not as diplomatic as it could have been, and if not for the fact that Xerxes was king of the Persian Empire. So far then, we've seen that Xerxes has issued a meaningless decree to his subjects, given an appallingly disrespectful command to his wife, and as he responds to that, we realize he's not really in control of himself. We already know that he was drunk, but his response to Vashti's refusal suggests that he has a general lack of self-control as well. Verse 12 says that he became furious and burned with anger. And we're supposed to picture him in an apoplectic rage, hurling his sculpted 24 gold carrot goblet at his seven eunuchs as he loses all sense of propriety. Now, those of you who have dogs have probably experienced this to a small degree. Dog ownership doesn't get much worse than trying to call your dog back from the fox poo they're happily rolling in, or the cow pat they're hoovering up without a care in the world, while your dog cheerily ignores you, and it feels like the whole world is staring down on you in judgment. Unless your dog doesn't do those things, in which case this was completely hypothetical and I have no experience of it. But if you've been in that situation, you will know that all you want to do is grab that dog and get away from prying eyes as quickly as possible. Right? Our natural response to embarrassment is to distance ourselves from those who've witnessed it. So it may come as a surprise then to read that when King Xerxes' wayward wife ignored his call, he doesn't seem to have ended the banquet immediately in favor of a private discussion with her. Then again, if you've been paying attention to the chapter so far, maybe his reaction is exactly what you expected. Because upon the failure of the first seven-strong committee, Xerxes calls a second committee, also of seven men, also with seven ridiculous names. These men seem to have been even more important and privileged than the first. They are the king's advisory board, experts of law and justice, wise men who understand the times. The meaning here is a societal understanding as well as a knowledge of the legal precedents that he might have had to be followed. So having got rid of the eunuchs, Xerxes calls on his legal A-team to resolve an argument with his wife. Slightly out of proportion, maybe. Now, verse 13 does say that it was customary for the king to consult these experts, but it is hard to believe that this is talking about his day-to-day -day life at home. Xerxes has turned a domestic squabble into a matter of state. And as we'll see, his panel of experts come up with what is, at best, an unwieldy solution. But before we get into that, just look at verse 15 for a minute. He says, according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? She's not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. It seems that Xerxes had no idea how to react to the circumstance that had taken place. But rather than admit it, he hides behind a legal query. According to the law, what should I do? It seems that Xerxes' legal team, though, see through the ruse. 
because none of their advice has anything to do with the law at all, nor do they mention any legal precedents. Instead, Memican comes up with an entirely practical answer that he thinks is likely to please the king, as well as justifying this official response to Vashti's refusal. He says, Vashti has not only done wrong against the king, but also against all the nobles and peoples of all the provinces of Persia. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they'll despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she refused. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Memucan descends into hysteria. According to him, Vashti's behavior threatens the whole empire with disaster. Surely, he says, if the other women folk hear about what she's done, they'll all do it. Can you imagine how difficult our lives will be? It'll be carnage, your majesty, right across all your 127 provinces. Really? Is the Persian Empire so fragile that its mighty nobility can't withstand the disobedience of one woman? Does it not seem absurd? And he carries on. Memican suggests that the king should issue a royal decree recorded in the irreversible laws of the land, saying that Vashti was never to set foot in front of him again. He suggests that this command be loudly proclaimed across the whole of Xerxes' vast empire, making sure that everyone, from the least to the greatest, is told about it. When I read that, it reminded me of a primary school playground. Your friend decides that they're going to go and hang out with somebody else, so you shout after them as they're walking away, Go! I don't want you around anyway! It has another problem as well, and it's quite a significant flaw, given that Memucan is worried about Vashti's behavior spreading. You see, when the king's royal decree was sent out, this bureaucratic behemoth hard at work translating and sending off messengers to all corners of the globe, won't it achieve exactly what they're trying to avoid? This decree, meant to combat Vashti's influence, is going to spread the stories about what happened like wildfire. And this is the best that Xerxes' think tank could come up with. Almost. It seems, in verse 21, that everyone at the table liked the idea and they agreed to go forwards with it. But the king seems to have amended the message when it's actually sent out. In verse 22, he dispatches everywhere, sending people to go and announce that every man should be ruler of his own household. The king commands for others what he couldn't achieve for himself. Now, when I read this chapter, you might have been a bit disappointed. Aside from the apparent lack of God in the chapter, it doesn't actually mention Esther. But as I mentioned to begin with, Esther chapter 1 has two big things to show us. Things that are then reinforced throughout the rest of the book. Firstly, Esther shows us the truth about earthly powers and authorities. And secondly, it invites us to consider the God we can't always see. Firstly, earthly powers are eternally impotent. King Xerxes and his Persian empire are reflective of every form of earthly power. They look and claim to be something great, 
but in a biblical, spiritual sense, none of them have the legs to back it up. Xerxes claimed to be a great ruler of a remarkable nation, but was ultimately a bureaucratic, emotional, impulsive man whose reign was run by bureaucrats, who was tied up by his own rules, and too frail to sensibly withstand the rebellion of a single woman. I mentioned that the banquets in this chapter were most likely military conferences preparing to invade Greece. Well, that campaign would ruin him. Xerxes came back from Greece defeated and destitute. And as the rest of Esther continues, it transpires that Xerxes' number two, Haman, was unable to achieve his goal either, the destruction of the Jews. Spoiler alert. It is true that the Persians were pretty remarkable people. They were master builders, and at the height of their power, they ran a remarkably wealthy and imposing nation. Their empire was a logistical marvel, and their political nous, the way they held together all these conquered nations, was impressive. But all of those things are in the past tense. Think about the Roman Empire, no less noteworthy, no less effective or competent, but also past. The Soviet Union, past. The British Empire, gone. Donald Trump, now facing different felonies. Earthly powers are eternally impotent. Now, I'm not trying to downplay the importance of the here and now. This is a question of getting the right perspective, which is actually a really difficult thing to do. Because yes, Xerxes was quite capable of sending people to gruesome deaths. The author of Esther pokes a lot of fun at him, but in an earthly sense, he really did wield quite a lot of power. And there's a danger when we indulge in the satire of this book that we trivialize those powers rather than recognizing the greater power of the God who rules over them. I don't want to downplay the weight and seriousness of our earthly experiences. They matter here and now. They're real, they're present, and God cares about them. And the Psalms are a really helpful way of getting this straight in our heads. There are Psalms like the one Gary read to us earlier, with God laughing at the rulers who plot against him in vain. But there are also lots of Psalms where the authors cry out in anguish because of their suffering at the hands of God's enemies. It's a little bit like a scene in a recent TV comedy in which a child foolishly goes to confront a group of violent bullies. Predictably, his admirable stand is short-lived as he's quickly pushed to the ground by the bigger, meaner group of boys. And just as it looks like he's about to take a beating, the bullies look up and run away. The camera pans round, and behind this child on the floor is a policeman, towering over him, helping him off the floor. Now, those bullies didn't run away because they were powerless to harm the child, but because of the much greater power of the policeman protecting him. The Bible is clear that we will experience oppression and opposition in this life. Genuine, hard-to-bear difficulties. And sometimes it will be because we follow Jesus. In Luke 14, which I did put up on the slide, but I realize now is tiny, 
Um, Jesus warns his disciples to count the cost of following him. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? And then he says a bit later, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming at him with 20,000? In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. And again in John 16, Jesus promises, that's even smaller, wow. Um, Jesus promises that his disciples will experience trouble. But he also promises that it is not a boundless hardship. That Jesus has overcome all the sources of these difficulties. He says, I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul, a man who suffered greatly for Jesus at the hands of earthly authorities, helps us to understand this perspective as well. I might as well not have put this up. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Earthly powers and authorities can cause us all kinds of problems now. Real, difficult to bear stuff. But they are limited by our Lord Jesus Christ. Limited now because he promises that we won't suffer beyond what we can bear. And limited eternally because Jesus has certified our eternal destination. He's bought the ticket, paid the fare, guaranteed your journey. So, if you are feeling under pressure today, be it from your boss, teachers, from government policies, from non-Christian parents or spouses, remember this. Their power and authority is momentary compared to the eternal glory of our Saviour and Lord. A glory that we will share in when he returns. I think, though, there is another danger for us when we get this perspective wrong. Yes, worldly powers and authorities can seem oppressive. They can leave us feeling downtrodden and without hope. But we can also idolize them, can't we? I know I've been guilty of looking to my employers for forms of salvation. I've been guilty of thinking that their leadership and their provision of pay rises and promotions can achieve stability or security for my family and I. The authorities of social influence, be they TikTok stars, rappers, business tycoons, they can seem to have everything under control, to be able to offer us what we think we need, to save us for the kind of lives that we want to live. The political parties in our government, we can develop a sense of dependence on them, feeling like we need them to save us from inflation, to establish our nation on a world scale, to deal with strikes and unions. No doubt, many of the people attending Xerxes' banquets were green with envy, dreaming on the chance to sit on golden couches or drape themselves in purple linen. I'm sure they were really excited at the idea of Xerxes' victory over Greece, 
all the new goods and ideas that it would have introduced to them. But history has shown, as we heard in Psalm 2, that he plotted and conspired in vain. Ultimately, all earthly powers like Xerxes are powerless to stand the test of time. And they are powerless to address our greatest need, the relationship with God that determines our eternal destiny. Which brings us neatly on to our second application. The God of the Bible is always at work for good, often unseen and unrecognized. Yes, it's true, God is not mentioned here by name. Nobody in the book seems to acknowledge his existence or worship him as Lord. But that doesn't mean he's not here. The book of Esther is a dramatic rescue story with God as the hero. Things fall into place in genuinely unbelievable ways. Apparent coincidences allow the Jews to narrowly escape total destruction. Except they aren't coincidences. Things don't just happen to work out for them. The big point of Esther is to show us that the God of the Bible works through the ordinary day-to-day lives of sinful people. Esther is such an amazing book, not just because of how well-written it is or the dramatic twists and turns that it takes, but because it shows us that even when his people live lives full of mistakes, neglecting and ignoring him, God is present and at work. And it's a book that starts with Xerxes and Vashti. Why? Not just because they set the scene for Esther's entrance into the story, but because they show that God is hard at work long before his people are mentioned anywhere. Why did Xerxes decide when his party was such a success to call down his wife? And why did Vashti decide to refuse the king of the empire's command? We've laughed at Xerxes and his response to it, but it must have been a unique event in Persian history. So why did it happen? Proverbs tells us, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. And again, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Xerxes sent for Vashti who refused, and then was divorced because God ordained it. He had a plan to rescue the Jews from destruction, and whether anyone could see it happening or not, he was always going to bring that plan to fruition. As we've sung, God is the author of all history. There is nothing that takes place that wasn't written in his annals of history long before any of us existed which helpfully brings our application full circle. How can we be encouraged in the face of oppression and hardship? How do we remember the frailty and insufficiency of human authorities? We look to the greater power, the only eternal authority, the God who is ever-present, who rules completely sovereign over everything and everyone forever. He's not a distant or remote God, He is one who is present and involved in the lives of all humankind. One of our pastors, Tim, helpfully says that any deity worth their salt can work a miracle. But a God who works through the ordinary, everyday lives of his people, that is a God he can get behind. 
The God of the Bible is that deity. He hasn't just set the universe in motion and is letting it run like a spinning top. He is stuck in to our lives, involved in the gritty reality of our daily existence, and nowhere does he demonstrate that better than through his son, Jesus. You see, Jesus put aside all the glory of heaven. He came to earth in the shape of a helpless baby, being born to a destitute family. He had to scrabble around in the dirt, eking out a living like so many people. He experienced betrayal and heartbreak, grief and loss, anger and oppression. And Tim helpfully preached last week on Hebrews 4 and 5 and showed us how Jesus endured the full human experience, but did so without sin, without ever displeasing the God who made the universe. He told us how Jesus even endured death, the final separation from God, punishment he didn't deserve, but willingly suffered in our place. So when you find yourselves feeling downtrodden, or you're tempted by the promises of today's authorities and powers, look to Jesus. Read God's promises in his word and see how he is fulfilling them through our Lord Jesus Christ. Dwell on the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us, how he freed us from the eternal consequences of our sin, offering us a certain hope. Be encouraged by the knowledge that Jesus has made all things possible for us. Be encouraged because Jesus has endured everything. He understands you and your experience completely. He is your representative before the God of the universe, our Father. So consider what's on offer in this world and ask yourself whether it really has the power to change your life whether it can fix what is broken. I want to close with a promise from the Old Testament that God made to his people. He said, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. It's Jeremiah 29. We're going to finish by singing two songs, asking God to help us see things with that right perspective and remembering how we see God at work in our lives through faith.
What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Amen.